You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hey, um, this morning, Heather Bailey is going to come and read scripture for us. Uh, she's going to be reading from Joshua chapter 6, verse 15 to 21. Uh, just before she does that, though, let me pray uh, as we come to God's word. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience, and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Heather. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is in that is within it, shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers who were sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction." And bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. This is the word of the Lord. So let me give you a bit of a frame in case this is your first Sunday here. Even if it's not, let's all admit we don't listen to every word of every sermon. So a little bit of context to what's been going on. We've been working through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. This is a point in the nation of Israel's history when they are stepping into the land that God has given them. It's a land that right now has other nations living in it. God has been bringing Israel to this point basically since the beginning, since he made promises way back at the start of the Bible that he was going to give this land to this nation. We've been waiting and watching them journey and stuff it up and get distracted and wander around. And now finally, last week, if you were here, they crossed the river into the land and today they face off with their first enemy in the land, the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho is an impressive city. It's a walled city. We find out in chapter 6 that it's a city full of men of valor. It is an intimidating first-up prospect for this nation, Israel, that aren't particularly good at war and battle, despite their potential confidence from God's promises that they are going to get given this land. 
And if you've heard the story before, you know it's an entertaining story. It's a children's classic. The wall falls down. A nation is defeated by loud brass music. Uh, and the question we've got to ask is, so what? What does this have to do with you? Well, before we jump right into that story, I listened to last week's sermon and noticed that Zach made a comment about 40 minutes into his sermon that there was a strange bit of the Bible that he didn't have time for, and so that was my problem this week. Good news, I actually want to go there, and so we're going to get into the end of chapter 5. Who here has watched the Lord of the Rings movies? Who here is a purist and has read the books? Okay, I apologize to the book people. Uh, When I was watching Lord of the Rings, I'm one of those people who gets frustrated by details in that movie. Uh, And so you get to the return of the king. It's the final movie in the franchise. And there's kind of been all this tension building the whole way up to this final battle at Minas Tirith. I think I'm saying that correctly. I apologize again. Uh, This final battle, and you're wondering, it's good and evil facing off. How could good possibly win against these odds of being outnumbered and, and just the severity of their opposition? And then we get introduced to this random army called the Army of the Dead. Now, if you watch the movie, what happens is this army of the dead rocks up and it's kind of like a green cloud. That's the best way I can describe the animation. It was a while ago. And this green cloud floats through the battlefield and everyone dies and the good team wins. And I'm sitting there wondering two things. One, where was this green cloud army four movies ago? We all could have saved ourselves 12 hours. (laughs) But also, where's the fun in that? Like the suspense is totally gone. As soon as you've got this dead army that can't be killed, it's just going to float through on command and end the story. It's all over. Why did we have to wait to the end to find this secret weapon? Well, the strange bit of the Bible that Zach wanted me to take you to today is that bit at the beginning of this story. So have a look at chapter 5, verse 13. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, so this is before the battle, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We meet this kind of enigmatic figure here. And all we know about him is, one, that he's a warrior. He's got a sword in his hand. We're told he's the commander of the Lord's army. The Lord has an army that he commands in this moment. We know that he's important because Joshua is told, Joshua is the leader and he is told to take his shoes off. He lays face down. He worships this commander because he recognizes the greatness of the one he is in the presence of. Before the battle begins... God shows Joshua that there is an army that he knows nothing about that is already in the battle with him. Not an army of the dead, but an army of the living God who stands and will guarantee victory for Israel as they step into this battle. It is clear before we even get into the details of this story, the battle belongs to the Lord. This is a terrible way to write a story. There is no suspense at all. There's no nerves for Israel. The battle belongs to the Lord, the commander of the armies of the Lord, this special, powerful, divine figure that commands myriad of angels at God's disposal, guarantees victory for them. And even as we get into the details of the battle, 
The battle plan is designed to make it clear that this is the Lord's battle and not Israel's battle. Jump into the details with me. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. You get the picture? You got a big walled city, think Troy in the movie, there's no way in or out. Israel can't get in and win this battle. That's the point. Before we begin, we need to realize that Israel has nothing to offer here, and yet he's guaranteed the victory. And so verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days, seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. When you make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. It's a kind of ridiculous plan. I don't know if it's just me, but if I was in the army at this point and Joshua was relaying this battle plan to us, you're looking at a fortified city full of men of valor who know how to fight. And the plan is, okay, guys, we're going to walk around at once and then we're going to go back and sleep for the night. This is like an easy introduction to battle. I'd be like, some questions. The next day, you're going to do it again, but you've got to stay silent. I'm like, we are just going to silent them out of there. The next day, you're going to do it again. And again, and again, by six days, I would be losing my mind saying, where is this going? What are we achieving as we wander around? Like, they can't be that intimidated. We've shown them we can do nothing about their walls except for walk silently around. It seems like a ridiculous plan. Even on the seventh day, having spent six days doing seemingly nothing, we're going to get there. We're going to do it seven times. And then we're going to blow horns. It's really getting serious now. Like, is it just me? Like, would you be happy with this plan if God said, this is how you're going to defeat your enemies? Walk around in silence, grab a trumpet, and then on the seventh day, shout, and the walls will just fall down. I know a kid in my life who believes that walls will fall down when he shouts. (laughs) This is not a typical assault plan, but that's on purpose. God designs this, this plan, this approach, because he wants them to understand that there is more going on in this battle than an army marching around the city. Only Joshua got to meet the commander and hear that this battle is the Lord's. And so in the battle, the Lord is showing that while you do your bit, I'm the one actually winning here. I'm the one actually exerting authority and influence in what is going on. See, at the center of the procession around this city is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's a box, a symbolic box that represented the presence of God among the people of God. And as they march around, you've got the fighting men at the front, you've got the ark in the middle, and then you've got the rear guard, and they walk around. And that's to say, this is the Lord in the battle. He is there with you. He is doing the work. God's presence is among his people. God is keeping his presence. He is front row center in this battle. Even as the nation of Israel just marches around, kind of watching on for what God is about to do. Even the number seven, seven days of marching, seven times, seventh day, seven horns, seven priests. It's the number of perfection because God wants them to know this is his plan. He is working in the details of what he is doing here. This is his battle. That's if you can call it a battle. I mean, battle is something of an overstatement, isn't it? 
This is kind of like the moment that the video store met Netflix. I don't know about you, but my first job uh, was in a video store. It was my dream job as a teenager growing up because I had visited a lot of video stores in my time and I knew that what you do when you work in a video store is you watch videos. And that is actually true for a fair percentage of the time. And I worked in a video store that was huge. We had long aisles of all different genres and themes. Even the transition to DVD, we were still dominating. Saturday nights were so busy. And then streaming services appeared. And for some reason, some video stores dug their heels in as if this was a battle they were going to win. I'm not sure if you're aware, but for two overnight hires, you can cover your month's subscription without the need to rewind, without the issue of availability, without having to get off your lounge and go to the store. This was never a battle. The final kind of holding on for grim life uh, blockbuster in this country, which you'll be encouraged to know was the last country outside of America to hold on to videos, closed in 2019 in Western Australia. Western Australia is a few years behind, so you've got to adjust for... (laughs) for dates there. But, but it wasn't a battle. It was never going to be a battle. As you look at those two kind of foes facing off, it was just an inevitability that video would fade into the background because the, more, the superior product had arrived. This is not a battle. Despite our effort to make it exciting for kids in the story, they shout, God crushes the walls, game over. Only about a verse and a half of this chapter are actually the battle. There's some instructions beforehand. There's kind of what happens afterwards. But essentially, a verse and a half of God crushing his enemies. That's the story. It's kind of difficult in the translation there. uh, But I don't know if you noticed when uh, Heather was reading it out, it says that the walls fell down. Uh, What it's saying there is not that the walls kind of toppled over like this, but they literally fell down on themselves like a downward force. It wasn't the power of the brass notes being blasted through the trumpets that forced them in, some kind of clever sonic warfare. God crushes the walls. They're marching around and God makes it clear, this is me doing it. This is not a face-off between two equal foes. This is the God of all creation and a nation that is opposing his purposes. They are pushed down and Israel strolls in and the battle is over. The Lord said to Joshua in there, I have given you, he says it before the battle, I have given you this city, past tense, it's done. We're about to see it play out, but the end is guaranteed. Such is the power of God, that no fortified city, no hostile nation, no flooded river can resist his will and his plan. The battle belongs to the Lord. There is none like him. No one to whom all people are accountable. No one else to whom he even is accountable. He alone stands. And when Joshua asks the commander the question in that strange bit at the end of chapter 5, when he asks him the question, are you for us or our enemies? Did you notice his his non-answer? He says, are you for us or our enemies? And what does the commander say? No. I'm not for you and I'm not for them. I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. I do the will of the Lord and nothing stops the will of the Lord. The question in this story, in this battle, is not will Israel defeat Jericho. The question is, God is doing something and will you be on his side or will you oppose him? The commander could well have turned to Joshua and said, are you for me or against me? God wants them to see, he wants us to see, 
He is for His will and His plan. As the Creator, He has the right to do with His creation as He pleases. And in fact, He is doing something far better than He would be doing if He was doing what we wanted Him to do. He has a good plan for His creation. That is at work. And which it sounds kind of basic to say that the God who made it gets to do what He wants with it, but it's not something we grasp. Whether you're someone who calls himself a Christian or someone who doesn't, this is a truth that we need to wrestle with a little bit more. Because the risk is, if you're a Christian, let's start here, this is not a blank check where you say, hey, the battle belongs to the Lord and so all my battles belong to the Lord and I'm going to win at them all because the Lord fights with me and he's got his army that, and so my, my new job or my success in my business or giving me children or, or a partner or whatever the battle might be. That's not what God says here. He fights for His will, which is better than your will. There is a danger for us when we presume on God based on stories. I've heard it said, what's your Jericho? God will help you fight it. No, this is not Israel's Jericho. This is God's Jericho. He is doing a work of which the next step is to defeat this nation because they are a hindrance in the work that he is doing, the bigger work of bringing blessing to the nations of the world. The bigger work that he is doing of offering salvation to those who do not deserve it. It's his battle. It's his will. Now, if you're not a Christian, you equally need to wrestle with this truth. Because already in this passage, God is showing you that in the world, He is at work and His will will not be stopped. Whether you're someone who, who wants to follow Jesus or doesn't, someone who's kind of walks and going, I don't know about Him, or someone who knows and says, I don't want to know Him. What's clear here is that He will do what He will do and nothing will stop it. Not a nation in an impressive city, not even an Israel with its own agenda, God is at work and he will work out his will. All of existence hinges on him, on this reality. He created things and his plans are being worked out through history and ultimately he will judge those who oppose his plans. That's what we get a glimpse of in this passage. Now, if I'm honest, I'm a guest preacher. That means I can get in my car after this and drive home. But I was aware that I'm walking into a room where some people will be in church for maybe the first time ever, maybe the first time in a long time, and God in His providence said, here, have a passage about judgment. Wouldn't have been my first choice. Lucky for you, I don't get to choose. There's some nervousness when we talk about judgment, isn't there? Some discomfort. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, the idea of saying, I'm going to invite my friend to church, they can hear that God is a judge, that judgment is coming, that judgment is inevitable, that judgment is right. We get uncomfortable about it, don't we? And this passage specifically has some quite severe judgment. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. When the last verse, we, we didn't quite get there, in verse 21, after the instructions that God had given, when the walls fall down and you go in there, everything in this city is to be devoted to destruction. Men, women, young, old, sheep, oxen, donkeys, and it says they killed them all. This is uncomfortable reading. 
if we're paying attention. It's uncomfortable reading. You might be sitting there going, where's the, the God who is love? I mean, a whole city is destroyed as part of the plan of God. So I just told you that's what he's doing. That his will, that his plan all along is what's being played out here. And part of that plan here is for a whole city to be devoted to destruction. Is there a part of you that feels uncomfortable? Like that this feels wrong? The reason we think that is because we have this wrong sense of justice. When I was in, uh, just in a high school, uh, where I, was in, I lived in Sydney growing up, uh, we had this theme park, this is Sydney's version of theme parks, called Australia's Wonderland. It was actually kind of amazing at the time, it's gone now. Uh, and somehow that was a maths excursion. Every year, annually, we would look forward to it. Like, you'd walk around with these worksheets for about 30 seconds, go, you know, see the geometry, okay. And then onto the roller coasters, into the Whitewater Rapids ride. It was a good day. We would look forward to it every year. Uh, and as a kid of that age, I had a deep sense of justice. I knew when something was wrong, particularly if it was wrong towards me. And I would not tolerate that. And I remember this day, we were preparing for this excursion. We were excited. Everyone had brought their snacks and their lollies and their soft drinks. Bags were loaded up. We were at the bus bay, getting ready to get on the bus. Everyone's hopped up and excited. And so, you know, we're shoving each other. We're really pumped to get on the bus. And the, the teacher at the front of the line got really frustrated because we were all overexcited and kind of shoving each other that he shoved me at the front of the line to try and calm us down and stop us. Now... I was aware of the gross injustice that had just been done. I was one of everyone pushing at that moment, and I had been singled out. And so I responded with the only just response that I could muster. And as a 12-year-old, I shoved him back. And the result was a yelling match and me ultimately being excused from that annual day of salvation. At which point I left school because of the gross injustice and walked to McDonald's and had my parents pick me up. But in that moment, technically it's correct that I received injustice, isn't it? If everyone was doing it, either everyone gets punished or no one gets punished. But what I didn't pay attention to was the injustice I did to this teacher who's just trying to manage a bunch of students that are causing trouble as I shoved him. That that's not okay. We love the concept of justice until we're on the wrong side of it. We need the concept of justice because we live in a world that is messed up and broken. And if there is no guarantee, no hope that wrongs will be righted, then there is no hope. And so we hold on to the concept of justice, but we twist it so that we only really hold on to it when it suits us, when it's good for us, when it's uh, beneficial for us. See, the problem when we come to the God of Scripture and we look at these moments in history where he, he does his righteous justice is that we presume everyone is innocent. Our starting point is the assumption that we are innocent, that they are innocent, and so God must be doing the wrong thing here. We define justice with us at the center rather than the God who created at the center. That's the core of what is wrong with the world. That's the issue with Adam and Eve right at the beginning of the Bible, is that when God says, this is what you are allowed to do and this is what you are not allowed to do, they say, no, we're going to make that decision. 
They say, we choose what's right and wrong. We choose what's justice and injustice. And from that point on, the world begins to unravel and break. And so we sit in this moment and despite our best efforts, we're uncomfortable with God's justice because deep down, we think we should be the one deciding who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. Even if we wouldn't presume to say we'll sit over everyone else, we at least think we have the right to make that call about our own life, don't we? And so we come to this passage and we feel a discomfort with God's justice. But these people are not innocent. In fact, this is not the first time we meet the people of this city. If you jump back to near the beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 15, when God is promising Abraham that in the future your descendants are going to inherit this land where Jericho is, he says these words about them. He says, As for you, talking to Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. He's not going to get the land that God promised. He's going to die. But the future generations, verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is a nation of sinful people deserving of judgment. And yet God in his kindness gives them four generations before he expresses his justice on them. You can look through passages like Leviticus 18, which tell us the kind of iniquity that marked the people of Jericho. They were sexually immoral, they were idolatrous, they worshipped any number of gods, they practiced child sacrifice. They are not an innocent people. But the other thing you've got to notice is that this isn't a question of Israel being innocent and Jericho being guilty. In fact, as God prepares to send them in, in Deuteronomy 9, he says this, he says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither nation is innocent in this story. One nation receives justice, receives what it deserves, and another nation receives mercy, but no one receives injustice. God who created, who rules, who sits over all, responds in his infinite wisdom to what is true and good and right. When we get to the New Testament, we're told in Romans 1 that no one has an excuse when it comes to God. This nation in Jericho cannot argue, we didn't get the commandments, we didn't get these other things. God has displayed his glory in creation sufficiently that we are without excuse when we stand before him. And yet Jericho completely misses what God is doing here. They miss what he's about to do, they miss what this is part of, and that's on them. Because did you notice that there's one character in Jericho, one family in Jericho that has a totally different story? The prostitute Rahab? The one woman who recognized who God was and cast herself on his mercy? She does not receive the judgment that Jericho receives. Not because she's somehow impressive, but because she comes to God asking for mercy and finds it. God's judgment is righteous and good and just and consistent. He does not change. And in this moment, we see different nations, different people responding to that righteous God in different ways and receiving according to that response. Not that one is good and bad, but one continues to shut the gates and try and keep God out while the other obeys and marches around the city, even not fully understanding what he's doing, trusting 
that he is worthy of their obedience. God's judgment is righteous and good and just. But it's also the means by which he works salvation. This is not God having a tantrum in this story. This is not God getting frustrated because one nation will not do what he says. He has patiently waited for them. Hundreds of years of working in the world that they might see and know that he is the God who rules, who they must bow the knee to. They recognize him, but they refuse to obey. They're scared of him. They shut the walls, but they refuse to come out and seek his mercy. Rahab did it, and what did she receive? The mercy she needed. God is not having a tantrum here, but through this judgment, which is a last resort. It's not just an impulse reaction. He comes to them after generations and pours out judgment because that is the means by which salvation will come to the nation of Israel. Ultimately, that's the means by which salvation comes to anyone. Because this nation Israel entering the land and flourishing under God and all that he will do ahead is the path that it takes for us to eventually get to Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of this nation. In fact, Jesus is a descendant of the woman Rahab who is rescued out of this city. God is doing more in this moment than dealing with one naughty city. He is working to offer salvation to a world that does not deserve it. The means by which they begin to take possession of this land is the next step in a bigger work that God is doing in history to offer forgiveness and salvation to people like you and me. But one thing you cannot deny in this picture of God's justice is that salvation is available. Israel is saved, but so is Rahab and her family. No one who received the judgment of God in Jericho that day did not choose it. No one who will ultimately receive the judgment of God on the final day when we all stand before him will not choose it. God has shown us who he is and how he works. He has shown us his judgment and his mercy and and for us even more fully in the person of Jesus. I don't know how, how you process the person of Jesus as you think about who he is and what he's done. But when we get to the cross, we see God pour out judgment so that salvation might be available. We see Jesus step in and take what we deserve so that we might know the mercy of God and know him as a heavenly father. The message of God's judgment is not a way of pointing the finger at you if you're a person in this room who doesn't follow Jesus. Because in this story, we are all Jericho to begin with. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're by nature objects of wrath. We are Jericho under the judgment of God, except that in Jesus, he offers forgiveness to us. In Jesus, he offers us mercy that we do not deserve. And the difference between Jericho and Israel in this story is not good and bad. It's that one obeys, that one trusts the mercy of God that is poured out. And so if you're a Christian in this room... The good news is that not only do you not have to battle Jericho, you don't have to battle anything like this. You are not called by God to march around and blow horns and crush cities and devote to destruction. But what God is doing now in history is calling people to the good news that in Jesus, judgment has been taken on our behalf. The work that God is doing in history now is through his people, not walking around in silence, but walking around declaring that in Jesus there is forgiveness and mercy and hope. Now again, I'm a guest preacher. You don't know me. 
You can just go home and think, Sam's a jerk, I wish I didn't come today. But please hear this. My goal is not to offend you. My goal is to show you who God is so that you might not have some caricature of a God who is, you know, fluffy, love in the clouds and doesn't care what happens, but equally you would not think he is vengeful and, and you know, tantrum-y and, and just kind of self-interested, but that he is the God who is holy and loving and just and who offers you mercy in Jesus, who holds justice and mercy together perfectly in pouring out justice on his Son that he provides for you. One day we will all face God, just like Jericho did. The question will be, will we continue to shut up the wall? Will we continue to refuse to acknowledge the God who rightly rightly rules over us? Or will we, like Israel, obey and walk in faith? I'm going to pray right now and the band's going to come up. While we're singing... If you're somebody who recognizes that right now you're living in a way, essentially you're in Jericho still, the threat of judgment is still something that is intimidating you and you would like to know the freedom and forgiveness and hope and blessing of mercy in Jesus, then I'd love to invite you to come down. I'm just going to hover in this middle bit here. Uh, Zach might be able to as well, a couple of others, and, and we'd just love to pray with you because the offer of forgiveness is held out. Why did God take six days Because again, he was saying, I'm here if you would cast yourself on my mercy. Day after day, Israel marched around to say, God is here. The city is his. Will you humble yourself and receive his mercy? But eventually, the time will run out. So don't wait. Receive the mercy of God now that you might know hope that you might know life, that you might know forgiveness, that you might know joy in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge that every single one of us in this room lives like we get to choose what's right and wrong, like we're in charge of justice. We whinge when you do what is right and good because it doesn't align with our will and we forget that it is you who sit on the throne. Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy, for the way you saved Rahab, the way you saved Israel, for your patience even with Jericho. Father, we thank you that you are showing us that same patience in this moment as you call us to yourself. God, we pray if there is someone in this room who right now sits under your judgment, that you would show them that forgiveness is available that you would lift that burden, that fear, that they might walk in the mercy and joy of being adopted into your family, being loved and treasured by you, that they might understand that their rejection of you is paid for, that the judgment they deserve is poured out on Jesus, that they might walk to you in confidence because they are washed and cleansed by his blood. Father, for those of us who know and love you, help us to catch the urgency of what you are doing in the world. Help us to remember that one day all creation will answer to you and yet we have the words of eternal life. Help us to boldly declare that in Jesus and only in Jesus there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is mercy. Father, have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.